Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. What's what's going on with your wall back there? <laughs> My chair. You need me to, you need me to come and do a little this is the old chair. It broke and it falls back into the wall and it's ch- slowly chipping through. I'll eventually be outside, I guess. You'll just, you'll just roll right back through the through the, <laughs> through the frame out into the snow. <laughs> I love the aesthetics of, you know, even in John's study, you know, there's stone and part of the powers, you know, the hierarchy of the tradition. This is the imperial church. <laughs> the Romans never conquered the world, but the British did. <laughs> That's right. Uh, <laughs> you know, you look, it's always kind of amazing. You look at that little bitty island. How in the world did they come to control most of the world? Yeah. Uh, it was obviously ordained by God. I guess it's providential. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I did. I enjoyed your blog. I oh, good. I was- good. I was glad to get the feedback. And you know, David reads of his reviews. Uh oh. <laughs> Maybe. I think I'm so inconsequential that I won't merit comment. Well, that goes completely against the spirit of your blog. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just a humble servant, one of the sacrificed. <laughs> I really enjoyed the book. I like the book. I think what he says is just is so much fun. I knew Paul would love this book. I was like, Paul, <laughs> yeah, yeah. immediately we're like, finally, you know, Paul's going to like a heart book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm here with uh, John and Matt. Boy, we've been a long time coming. You know, I noticed that you guys with this whole thing, you're working the jobs and they seem to be interfering. I think with the real work that we do in having the theological conversation. And I'm so glad that we're back together again to have a conversation. We're going to discuss David Bentley Hart's recent book. It just was published, wasn't it? Apocalypse and Tradition. Is that, have I said it right? Tradition and Apocalypse. Tradition and Apocalypse. We're going to. The most important thing last. Yeah. Yes, I said it backwards. The the, uh, the ambitious subtitle, an essay on the future of Christian belief. Yeah, yeah. Here it's spelled out as to where it's going. And only somebody like Hart could undertake. It took somebody of his breadth of experience and, and knowledge, I think, to have laid this out and, and have laid it out as an Eastern Orthodox theologian. That is, that it's hard to resist what he's describing. But I think we're going to turn to John first, and John is going to sum up key aspects and map will throw in and correct wherever necessary. Yeah, so I you know, actually read a review the other day of this book, but I noticed they missed the main point of the book, which is simply what he's doing that's special is to apply, he just straight up applies Aristotelian categories of metaphysics to thinking about what is tradition. And specifically, he has a view towards final causality and formal causality. Easy way of thinking about, well, what does that mean? Is formal causality would be like according to what? Final causality, Hart's much more specific in laying this out in the book, is really what is the goal of something? In the same way as you might say, well, the final cause of a human being is Jesus Christ. What Hart is doing there is he's saying there is uh, already this antecedent foreshadowing aspect to what something is that unfolds towards its final end. 
and can develop even towards its final end. You get this in patristic thought about anthropology uh, quite a bit, that human beings uh, are really what their potential is, and their potential is to be in union with God. That's how you would talk about final causality. And so once Hart does this, it becomes so strikingly obvious that this is how you have to talk about tradition. It's like metaphysics in motion. I think he says something like that. I think that's very good. Uh, Whereas the tendency, of course, is to treat tradition as some historical project. Let me just insert that uh, you've captured it. And maybe if we insert another word into this, that is that in describing this, he's actually describing what salvation looks like. In other words, if I had to say, what is the key part of his book? what I think is the key part. It is what you've said, and to say one more thing, and what this means is what we're really talking about is the full scope of salvation. If we get salvation correct, the salvation and the tradition, a correct understanding of salvation is going to allow or uh, not fall into the mistake of either finding doctrine and history as containing the fullness of salvation. And so he's going to picture, as you've, I'm just adding a footnote, he's just, he's going to picture salvation as heading toward an eschaton of fullness that is being realized. It's unfolding. Let me say, so. What, you know where this idea, this idea isn't new to him, actually. Where you see this done in a similarly striking, and then it seems so obvious way, is actually in Thomas Aquinas' Summa, that dogma or the understanding of doctrine is going to be according to the way of salvation. And so I think we need to say specifically exactly what you just said, Paul. Uh, it really is according to theosis, so that to live in the tradition should be the way one gets saved. That's what, if we want to talk about tradition, that's what it ought to be. It ought to be the people of God heading towards union with God, full theosis, becoming like Christ. And that's the insight that Hart is applying to the concept of tradition, which, of course, nobody was really talking about as a fundamental theological category before Newman. But you see that idea to connect dogma or understanding of doctrine to theosis, both in Aquinas and probably in some patristic sources as well. So That's what Hart is describing, right, is deification. Yeah, if we're talking about theosis, deification, his illustration of this, I think, is especially nice. Things like the person and work of Christ, that there may be a period in church history, nobody's working this out, that that it's not a necessity. But at the same time, they're coming to work out the person and work of Christ. In implicit in understanding that is this is the thing that we're talking about. That is, theosis is going to imply a particular understanding of who Christ is in his humanity and deity. Yes. And so I think in a sense, what Hart is arguing for is that even more important than any doctrinal articulation of this idea is the concept implicit in Christianity that Jesus is the God-man, and that this is the way that human beings uh, become friends of God, is by God assuming humanity in Christ. Now, to say that is to say something very vague, and the tradition that we have, if we wanted to talk about the ecumenical councils, is really just working that out. That's all they're concerned with. That, and that's really why Hart makes the case that, okay, these things are valid, because they worked this out in such a way 
that is never exhaustive. So it is always opening up more avenues for going deeper and deeper into this idea of union with God in Christ, the incarnate Logos. So I think that's key to what he's doing. But what he can also say then is that the articulations of that con- that doctrinal content, this great insight that is in the New Testament, is never exhaustive. Or you could say not exactly necessary in the forms that it comes. You know, David gets accused a lot of times of being arrogant and things like this. But I think that what he's wanting to draw our attention to is a sort of theological humility. The openness that you just talked about. And a lot of times when we think about tradition, it's, a, it's sort of a closed understanding of how revelation functions. But isn't uh, Hart wanting to say that, no, actually, it's just the opposite, that the tradition is maybe marking off sort of like the boundaries of the discussion, but it's opening us up to uh, what, you know, he talks about in other places, like uh, Gregory of Nyssa's idea of uh, apectasis, which is like an infinite sort of stretching forth out into union, union with God, right? I think that Hart also wants us to be humble in the sense that it could be then that since the Logos of God is unveiling itself throughout history, uh, that it may be found in more places than just in the Christian tradition, right? That we're humble enough to say, okay, well, clearly as Christians, we believe that uh, our tradition, you know, Christ incarnate and things like this is the fullest revelation of God. But I do think that Hart would want us to at least pause and be humble and think that, well, maybe— uh, the Logos of God is revealing himself in other places that may, in fact, even elucidate. You know, Matt, he would say exactly that, except without all the maybes. <laughs> I think he would just say, because God is the final cause of all things, mm-hmm. and uh, according to what? It was apparently according to Jesus Christ, the one who is God and human united perfectly, that of course this is going to be true, that there's going to be wisdom in other places, because that's their proper final end as well. What Matt has said, what you're saying, that what we have in things like the the Nicene Creed is not so much a positive description as a kind of delimitation and to say, well, this is the direction. There is a pointer in the direction. He holds these things very loosely, that there is always an open-endedness to any kind of symbolic order or creed or that the point is not that you can capture it. And I, I really like the way that he, he described that. Just real quick, I think that that's critical because there is an economy of language, you know, that he describes in the book in the different creeds. And that is, is that it doesn't say everything precisely because of the openness that we're talking about. So like in the, you know, maybe in the Nicene Creed that, you know, that he was incarnate and made man. Okay, well, there's an economy of language there that we would need to unpack and unfold, and that's what theology is, right? Is the progressive sort of unfolding of those parameters that have been put in place by the quote-unquote holy fathers that we'll talk about. So I think that that's a, that is a key point that we I think that we misunderstand that usually that we think that what tradition is is like a, a strict sort of fundamentalism almost that there's a strict sort of uh, in-group out-group sort of dis, you know distinction that's being made there and those. Um, orthodoxies or whatever. But I, I think that Hart is pointing out that, no, actually just the parameters, uh, this is what we don't believe. You know, this is what's sort of out of the realm of Christian, you know, sort of doctrine and understanding. I think you can be more specific about this. What usually happens is when people talk about the creeds preserving something, they almost always will talk about that and what he's going to later uh, call through Blondell's thought extrinsicism 
which is to say there's some unchanging bit of dogma fully formed in the past that the creeds are preserving. But Hart wants to flip that on its head, and I think this is the strength of the argument. He's saying, yeah, the creeds actually do preserve something. They preserve the open-ended conversation about theosis. So that at some point, these other avenues of thought, if taken to their extreme, or if made, say, the formal way of Christian thinking, would cut off more avenues of thinking about theosis than they would provide. And that's exactly why uh, those things should not be upheld as tradition. But he's more reticent than that to give any kind of litmus test. So the only time he even gets close is in talking about the early uh, or more hierarchical um, tradition of having a gradation of beings between God and humans, which just made more sense in the ancient world, to be honest, would have made more sense to Jews and everybody else that God couldn't mingle with humanity as God's self, but you might have some gradation of created beings le- uh, higher to lesser that would allow for this communication. Hart says, of course, that gets cut off by Nicaea. And this is the closest I think he comes to saying what gets obliterated by tradition. See, this is the neat thing in the way that he uses tradition. It just doesn't preserve, but it also destroys sometimes what comes before it. I think that's the closest he gets to saying what was done away with may have been more narrow-minded and parochial than what gets instated. Even though, of course, then what gets instated would have been radically new. And as he points out, even the idea, of course, of an ecumenical council uh, was this radically new thing for Christians. This sort of like sublation, like almost like a, right? Like they're also, like to me, there was almost like a slightly vaguely sort of Hegelian sort of. Thing. Oh, yeah, yeah. He says as much, I think. He's dealing with the realities, the political realities of the shift, the Constantinian shift. And the way that he describes kind of the anarchy of the early church, because the kingdom was coming, time is short, they kind of existed without uh, even necessity or need for a doctrinal unity. And so the, the political pragmatism that shines forth in bringing about the Nicene Council and the need for this unity is then the, the result of empire. See, again, there's always this tendency, of course, to head towards an oversimplification. You've got to remember there were plenty of local councils before the ecumenical council, and there was always a drive towards unity. It's just a more local unity than what you get with Nicaea. No one could make the pronouncement that will come out of the Nicene council that is going to to provide for a universal sort. But of course, people tried to, is my point. So I don't think it's the result of empire alone, Um, that there is sort of a human tendency towards conformity, even at a local level of church governance. So go read Ignatius of Antioch. He certainly thought he had the authority to make uh, universal pronouncements, at least in his jurisdiction. And this is what Hart's getting at. See, I hate the oversimplification. What Hart's getting at is there was no uniformity. But that you, so when you say that, it doesn't mean that the sort of anarchy, everybody did what was right in his own eyes, and there was these beautiful little house church communities was true either. Uh, there were plenty of people who had monarchical ideas about the church and were willing to enforce them hundreds of years before Nicaea. Hart says, once upon a time, Christianity grew and endured and even flourished over the course of many generations in total and blissful ignorance of any officially defined dogma or any single universally recognized canon of scripture. It's just, a, it's, a, it's a nice sort of provocative yeah. quote, but I like what John was saying too. 
you know, so continue. Well, my point is just that that wasn't, that wasn't uh, just a positive picture. <laughs> That's what I'm trying yeah, to say. Yeah, no. It's it, it, just to say, oh, it was beautiful. Everybody just got a right. No. <laughs> yeah, was, no, there, from, from there, the New Testament, we get the idea. People are wanting to do away with certain heretical tendencies and to squelch. So, yes, absolutely. And so shouldn't there, always somebody trying to impose a unity. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. There and and of course it is only with Constantine uh, that anyone has the political capability to impose that. And that doesn't even work. I mean, we should right, again. Right, right. We need to be historically honest about the complexity of all of this. That Constantine's council doesn't have the last say, nor was it thought fit to. You have Julian the apostate in between. Well, I was going to say that uh, I always struggle. John's going to send me, you know, he has like a little um, icon set of Constantine and Helen, you know, and yes. I'm going to send you, you know, it's, it's, uh, he was like, you know, you can display it to show how God can even use, you know, the state to, to, for his end. Yeah, it's an interesting way to think of it because part of me wants to say, no, I'll never, I'll never put an icon of Constantine in my, in my home, <laughs> you know, never, you know. Uh, and then, then part of me is like, uh, no, I think John is right, you know. So it's kind of like that tension, you know what I mean, that, that we're trying to describe uh, yeah. that that captures, you know. Yeah, I mean, that's the trouble, right? I think this is what Hart gets to in this book so well, is that he wants to get away from being able to say what is necessarily the Christian tradition. And he wants to allow for the fact that there are accidents. But he also wants to say that who could know? I think that uh, what he doesn't do is he never says, but it seems so obvious to me, and especially knowing that he's read Lonergan, this is, he's using a sort of Lonerganian framework looking at history. Because what he's wanting to do, especially in taking on Blondell's argument, he wants to say that extrinsicism, which is sort of a recourse to classical laws, is ultimately problematic, and we shouldn't do that. It leads to a sort of fundamentalism, and you have no way of uh, incorporating history into that. But then again, to look at the history and empirical residue, what you're left with really is a form of randomness. What would it seem like randomness to any of us anyway, because we're finite. Uh, we wouldn't be able to then be able to define the tradition there either, which of course is Newman's flaw, uh, that he wants to pick and choose. Like he can draw the line through the dots on the graph and he knows the, the true line of Christianity, which is just absurd. And Hart then, of course, is saying, well, actually, you, what you have to account for is the metaphysical reality of what tradition is, potency and act, form and causality, and ultimately uh, final causality. And so I think it's just a beautiful picture. But what it what it does force us to do is that we can't say, even with the bits that we like, that perhaps are before the imperial Christianity, that, oh, yeah, that's the real thing. Because, of course, the point is, you're not going to find the real thing anywhere in history. But rather, history is unfolding the real thing to you, ultimately to be unveiled at the consummation of all things when you are known fully by God and fully know as a human being could this process of theosis. That's when we're saying real, real thing here, though, what, what are we referring to? Tradition? Oh, I mean, already out there, fully formed dogmatic Christianity. Yes. Hart does not hesitate to say, here's what's in the Bible. Here's what the early Christians believed. They were communalists. They, they believed in shared sharing wealth. They were in a different economy. They were anti-hierarchical. They, in fact, he describes them as standing out what would later be the Eucharistic tradition. Uh, he describes them as being anti-rich, anti-lording and over other people. 
what he's describing then, he's going to say we, or those in a, in a kind of American Christian understanding, would call these darn hippie, he uses stronger language, these snowflakes, these, these socialists, these pacifists. And of course, that is the key thing, that what is relinquished, that he acknowledges is there in the early church, is non-participation in the military, is non-participation in anything to do with capital punishment, non-participation in violence. Mm -hmm. He locates this, he says, this is a key part. This is the essential part. He, he says, even stronger than this, he describes the life of the early church of consisting mm -hmm. of, of these sorts of things. And then he describes the life of the church that unfolds from Constantine this is worth quoting, and that is the section where he says that what becomes Christianity is, in fact, more of a negation of the apostles and Christ and the early church. Mm -hmm. He does not hesitate to say, here's what the Bible, you know, here's what the early church, here's what the apostles, here's what Christ taught. So when we're talking about this, it is true that there's an open-endedness to this. But in saying that it's open-ended, I don't think that we need to just say, oh, we, there's nothing to be said about where people have in some way transgressed or, you know, undone or negated. Or even in his language, he, you know, he uses the word paradox. And then he adds a note and say, let, let me be clear by paradox, I mean contradiction. That is that what was in the early New Testament, in the New Testament understanding. I have the quote, it says, uh, well, here's one of the quotes. It would be no exaggeration to say that viewed entirely in historical perspective, cultural and institutional Christianity has for the most of its history consisted in the systemic negation of the Christianity of Christ, the apostles and the earliest church. Okay, thank you, Matt. So here's what we need to make sure we're not doing. We need to actually understand the argument of the book, which is, is not, as Hart says, a restorationist fantasy. In this section, what he is laying out for you is why you can't do tradition via history only, because what you're left with is a negation. But what he also doesn't think, and what I think would be very dangerous to think, is that in, even in the Christianity of the Bible as we have it, that what we have is the fully formed, unchanging, dogmatic reality that only gets negated by successive ages. In other words, that's not, and that's what I was saying a moment ago, it's not already there, but rather what the Christian tradition is for Hart, and I think this is the strength of his argument, actually has to do with the end. Uh, and any sense of final causality already has uh, an antecedent within the thing itself. That is to say that uh, it's not as if something transforms in such a way that it's unrecognized. This would be Theseus's ship or something, right? It's like, oh, all the wood's different. That's not the point. What's there in the beginning is what's going to become the end. But what he's certainly not arguing for is, oh, here it is. Uh, uh, here's Christianity fully formed in the age of the apostles. And then that gets negated. And that's the problem of tradition. He's saying the problem of doing tradition via history is the fact that it's absurd precisely for this reason. But that's just a, a historical project. And if you've read his New Testament, you know that he doesn't even think the New Testament's consistent in the sense that even to say the entire Christianity of the apostolic age thought or did this would be just as laughable. 
Yeah, that's that's often one of his uh, critiques is that it's a fiction to imagine that there's sort of a univocal voice either among the holy fathers, quote unquote, or you know even James and Paul or P, you know Peter, you know things like this. Precisely because of the points that John was just making, that this thing really is unfolding in history and growing and, and becoming more of what it truly is. And I I want to fully embrace what both of you have said, even what Hart is saying, and say that we probably need though to go to go beyond that. That is, yes, this is unfolding. And yes, the truth of it will be realized in the eschaton. But we can also do what he's clearly done and go back and say, nonetheless, there are essential truths that we can locate in the church and the, the teaching of Jesus that have been negated. He is, his project is such that he cannot locate that and say specifically, essentially, or the project would fail if he overstates what is necessary. Because in his own description of this, one thing replaces another thing. But I think that, in fact, this would be my critique of the book, that in the end, we need to be able to say, well, here is a teaching that is negated and is, in fact, in essence, to the teaching of Jesus, that if it's negated, and of course, this is, the, that, this is nothing radical, this is what the New Testament is about, there are some things you cannot say and do and still claim to be a follower of Jesus. See, I think this is just, uh, I mean, you're a restorationist at heart, and we just want to be fundamentalist about different things. I don't, I mean, I think this whole book is geared against the, that. So it's not just pushing the book further. It's just a real disagreement with Hart, which is fine. But uh, to really embrace like any sort of historical study, which he lifts up of the New Testament, it's like this just becomes impossible. Do because let me ask. ask I mean, it's like is there nothing? Is there nothing in the New Testament? Is there not any one essential thing that you want to say if this is negated? then we've in some way made a departure from New Testament. Yeah, well, I would say yes, but not. It, but this all is a discussion about method, really. Not because it was a historical reality in the New Testament, but rather because of how it coheres towards the final end, which is theosis. So I would say there's a whole lot, but I would do the same thing with the tradition. And then I would allow for a lot of the empirical residue, the sort of historic data around it, to be, uh, it could be simply accidental. I don't think it's a necessity at all. So I think that, that therein lies actually the problem. Is it only true that the communitarian community and acts can live into that full reality of theosis and that other communities can't? Well, actually, I think you can argue from history that, well, it's not actually true, <laughs> oddly enough. We see Christians flourish, even imperial Christians, some of the best theologians who capture the idea of theosis better than anybody else. So I'm just willing to say those things may in fact be accidents, accidental to the the idea of what tradition is. That's my only point. Of what course, I think that what you're going to find related to the final end is going to be in scripture, but also in the third century, also in the seventh and eighth centuries and the 13th century and so on, even today. So can we specify, or can we not, what that is? Well, I think you could talk about what dogmas are related to 
the final end of Theosa. Sure, yes, absolutely. But realizing that this project is always sort of tenuous, and I think that's his argument, to be able to say with surety, like, oh, here's the tradition that gets negated or doesn't, that's just Newman's project. Now, you're going to pick a different line in history than Newman is, I'm sure, but it's well, the now, same method. No, no. You're, you're accusing me of a method of restorationism, which is not at all what I'm describing. This is what Hart does in the book. He, he makes a list of things, predestination in a you know, arbitrary Calvinist sense, penal substitution, limited atonement, uh, he goes through and he says, these teachings, these dogmas, which have characterized the church in certain places in world history and have, in fact, been made the essence of the gospel. Mm -hmm. He says, this is a denial of the essence of the gospel. It's, That's it's right. over and against so, the essence. So of let me the ask you this. Why, though? This is, the question of method is actually supreme here. Why are those things... Is it because they have negated something that came before them? No, not some truth that was already there. That's not Hart's argument. Hart's argument is these things are negations of the tradition because they do not, in fact, live up to his definition of the tradition, which is to say they don't look forward to any sort of union with God, theosis. They don't participate right, right, in right. This, this sense of final causality. Right. The tendency, of course, is to say, well, that's because uh, you know, early Christianity didn't do any of these things. Well, uh, early Christianity didn't say the Nicene Creed either, but it's pretty good. So, you know, this is the problem you're left with. It's how, how is, and I, that is the book really in a sense, which way are you looking? Does a negation of the tradition come because you think it's negated something that came before it and that full truth was already revealed somewhere in the past? Right. Or is it because those things that are revealed in the past are already participating in the end? Right, that his, his description of these doctrines or dogmas that, in fact, are over and against, what they would do in his own depiction of method is they are a, they're a cutting off, and they're a closed end instead of open-ended. And so that's his critique of, uh, of Newman, that's his critique of Blondell. And so, yeah, that is, that is that these things then close off the discussion. And so I think in the method, there is a doctrine of salvation that is made clear. And that's kind of the beauty of the book that he's, he's laying out. Okay, we can say some things. And he's going to specify in, in several places. And of course, what he does not want to do, and, and, and I think that we can all agree, in saying this, he's never saying the love of Jesus doesn't break through in these communities of people or in these places. He is remaining, and I think rightly so, a little ambiguous. And I, I think that we're that's the place we all yeah. are. Yeah, I have, I have a quote. I feel like I'm becoming David Bentley Hart's like little quote boy during this discussion. Okay, but, no, we need the quotes because the quotes are beautiful. Then <laughs> this is a good one, and it's pertinent to. So he says, whatever the situation, tradition must be invoked to defend both everything that has never changed in the faith and everything that has. And the faithful, as participants in that supposedly living tradition, are always suspended somewhere in the middle of this curious oscillation. Hart talks other, in another place about the metaxological, you know, William Desmond's idea of the metaxological, you know, the being in between. And so, Paul, I think that, you know, of course we have a 
profound respect for the authority of the scriptures, because that's the other thing the heart of here is talking about is the whole idea of authority, right? And so we have a you know profound respect, respect for the tradition of the scriptures and saying that peace is there. And that, you know, there's certain currents of the tradition where peace, you know, sort of remains uh, critical sort of to the core of Christianity. But I think that, Paul, you're you're not wanting to just I'm, I'm with you in the sense that you're saying, well, I thought it was just a part of this restorationist fiction that Hart is describing, because, Paul, I do think that you're looking forward to peace as, a, you know, sort of a method precisely because this is who the risen Christ is. So not just because we're looking back to some sort of dogmatic history, but because we're looking forward to the person of Christ, that this is who Christ is. He's the Prince of Peace, whether we look backwards to his life on earth, whether we look to the tradition and your, you know, and your understanding of the fullest sort of form of the tradition of a peaceful sort of Christianity now in the present or in the future, asking, you know, sort of, I, I don't know if you would go this far, but into the apocatastasis you know, or the restoration of all things, right? In other right. words, peaceful orientation of all creation. So I do think that um, it's important for that. That is, I think, the argument of Hart's book is that he's saying that you're not going to be able to get there by just looking to the past and saying, well, these are the these are the scriptures that we got to, this is the tradition and these are the holy fathers that we got to, you know, but that it's looking forward also to the person of Christ. In other words, an interpretation, I think that Hart would say, of history, of dogma, of the scriptures and of eschatology that's in accord with uh, what we know that is worthy of the glory of Christ, right? right. And that's to me that the in, that the incarnation of Christ then would ha- you know I think that we would all agree that Christ is incarnate in history that he's incarnate within I, I would argue you know with, with origin that he's incarnate in the scriptures that he's incarnate in then the the history and as much of it it's true and good and beautiful in the tradition that Christ is there that he's incarnate in that uh, and I would also argue in other wherever wisdom is to be found and then also of course in in the in the future uh, because you know Christ is always the same yesterday today and forever right that he's he's unchanging that he's always uh, peaceful that he's always good loving etc. I think that being in between that metaxological is just where we find ourselves and there that entails like a necessarily sort of humble posture that we kind of uh, have to say, well, we really, that's what Hart is saying, is that you can't prove just from history that these dogmas are true, that, that, that Christ is, uh, I think, John, am I, am I right about that? That, you know, we can, that because it's always unfolding, um, that we're not going to meet Christ then, right, in, in like these sort of, the, the, in these dogmatic sort of pronouncements, right, because they're not right, fully right. formed. They're not fully formed yet, because humanity is really is headed towards and on a journey towards unity with God. But that is, again, with regular Missa and Epictetus, it's an infinite sort of process. So it's a supremely arrogant thing to say that we have the truth and we can find them here in the scriptures. We can find them here in the tradition. We can find them here in the Holy Fathers. It's like, yeah, you have a part of the truth. You have a participation in different you know, avenues, uh, wherever the tradition may, may be, or maybe even the religious uh, uh, sort of traditions outside of Christianity, right? That, but we never have a full and final sort of That's participation it. in God yeah. uh, until, you know, the restoration of all things. When That's, God- what, That's it. In other words, what you're describing makes the movement, you know, that restorationism is, in fact, a kind of closure on what you're describing. And so what you're describing is this open-ended understanding. And so let me take one the example that you raised of peace. 
Clearly, the, er the early church taught nonviolence, but did they completely comprehend that? Did they completely understand? So you have examples of uh, Tertullian talking about, you know, that Peter is told to sheath his sword and for all places and all times, then the sword is, you know, in other words, he clearly had this idea of nonviolence. But the same Tertullian can then describe the, the wonders and glories of beholding those burning in hell uh, that we can, in other words, they're, they're going to project onto God and contain within themselves an element of violence that they're not recognizing. They believe in nonviolence, but they just has, have simply not understood the, the sense in which this is kind of all-encompassing uh, characteristic. And so any notion that we need to go back and that it's simply a restoration, that too is a, that is a closure on the doctrine. And so I am, Matt, you described it beautifully that when this thing is unfolding theologically, it's unfolding historically and doctrinally. None of this is closed. But nonetheless, there are elements like peace. We can go back and say, oh, yes, they affirm these things, and their affirmation of things, these are still unfolding. But to relinquish even the notion of peace, to relinquish the notion of nonviolence, is to do violence to the New Testament. In other words, there are things that we need to be able to say to negate this aspect of the gospel is a true departure from the teaching of Christ. And I know that Hart, you know, in his project, there is a part of his, in other words, I, I agree that we don't want to locate this or to specify it in the details and, you know, is going to defeat his project. But I also think that nonetheless, his project that would be my critique, which he himself admits. He says at the end of the book, I've given you nothing practical. <laughs> uh, and, and that's right. And I think, though, that we can be a bit more practical, that we do need to be more practical. And what it means to be practical is that at the end of the day, that we have a task, we're given a job to do. In other words, it's not enough to just throw up our hands and say, well, it's all unfolding, and it'll all be revealed in the future. And I, I don't mean to denigrate his project, because he's done a, a wonderful picture of describing the contradictions. But I think once we describe the contradictions, that we need to be able to say, yeah, and it's not enough to just live with a church institution, with a dogma, with notions of history that, in fact, are simply a negation of the gospel. We need to do something to be about following Jesus in an active way and to rid ourselves of the violence where that is not possible. So run that down. What are we ridding ourselves of? Uh, the inherent contradictions to the gospel that he's describing. Which are, I mean, what are you actually, like, let's get very practical. So how would you apply this? I think that what he's given us a list of things, all of which entail an element of violence. In other words, to my mind, the peaceableness of the gospel and the love of the gospel are necessarily linked. He does a beautiful picture, you know, with the love of Christ. Mm -hmm. But I think we can specify the love of Christ in the particulars that I don't think that we can kill our neighbor and love them simultaneously. 
And you understand there are doctrines and dogmas and places in the church where they would say that, that in fact, to kill your neighbor and save their soul is to love them better. And what I would say, no, I, I think that's probably, that's a mistake, not probably a mistake. I think that's wrong. I think that's a twisting. That's a negation of the gospel that has been affirmed by the church. And you would say it's not worthy of the glory of Christ, right? Like the so those other things that you know predestination without regard to any sort of foreseeing of merit and things like this, uh, limited atonement, which is just a blasphemous doctrine. It's like they're not worthy of the glory of Christ. And so I think that what you're saying is that killing your neighbor, uh, things like this, like aren't worthy of the glory of Christ. Right. Right. And so I think we could go through and specify a lot of things, but we need to be able. In other words, what he has not done. And what I would think is necessary is we need to fill out that thing. You know, he says, faith, he quotes Paul's passage, you know, it's faith, hope, and love will endure, but the greatest thing is love, and, and that even faith and hope will eventually be undone by the love of Christ. I think that's right. I think that's a beautiful picture. But I think we need to be able to say some more things about what love consists of, and that's what's being revealed to us in yeah. the gospel. Say it. No, I'm saying say it. Say what the, what those things are. You cannot love your neighbor and kill them, number one. You can't love your neighbor and oppress them. You can't love your neighbor and lord it over them. You can't, in other words, you can just go through the violence, oppression. What's entailed here, of course, is the treatment of women, the treatment of slaves in the early church, the treatment of some sort of class of non-citizens, uh, I mean, this is the very reason that Christ died. He cry dies outside the city because they killed him. Well, who killed him? The people who are establishing the principalities and powers, the archons of the age. This is the part of heart, his picture of what salvation consists of. That it is, you know, Paul's picture is that these archons, these fallen angels, these powers are defeated. Uh, I think that is a picture of New Testament Christianity. But then he goes on to describe the church. I, I'm wondering why can't he describe the defeat of Christendom as itself? And of course, this would be to, to defeat his project. He describes the defeat of the archons of the age, and then he describes Christendom in such a way that it's very much aligned with those principalities and powers, that you could almost see the, the Jesus and Christianity of New, the New Testament in its defeat of the powers, challenging the very powers he's describing the church as having aligned itself to. Now that takes his... See, that's where you lose me again. <laughs> this is where I hear those, I mean, I'm not calling you a restorationist, but when you say the Jesus of the New Testament is going to defeat the Jesus of Christendom, that's, that is... No, I, mean, I didn't. That's... I didn't say that. I didn't say that. I'm just saying that in his description, he is giving. What us... did you say then? I have you recorded. That... I'm just saying that in his description. In other words, he said that we have the picture of the in the New Testament that it is a deliverance from the powers. Yeah. And then he describes the church as being subject to those powers. So he can't make the next step and say, "Well, wait a minute. What I just described as salvation in the New Testament stands over and against." the very Christendom that I've said that the church has aligned itself to. Isn't that his, but his book? I mean, his book is, I thought, a sharp sword to Roman Catholicism, Orthodoxy, Protestantism. In other words, like, isn't that what the book is about? Is taking the, you know, sort of like the sword to this sort of comfortable 
too precious of a security. I, I read the book as sort of an attack upon me. I was like, I, I feel, I feel uh, attacked, you know? It's like in a, in a good way, right? It's like, I think that that's the point of the book is he's going, hey, are you, are you holding on to some sort of false security uh, in the institutional or in the, you know, maybe even in the scriptural or in your understanding of the Holy Fathers or, you know, in other words, or, or are, you, are you looking for, is your hope in the risen Christ, right? Like to me, that really is an attack upon, I think that what John said stands, you know, that, that some of the greatest proponents of things like theosis and Christian doctrine were in some ways holding hands with the empire, right? Like at least in some way. And so I think that that's an, that's an important distinction. And I want to hear John's response to, because I think that Paul is raising at the very least, like a, you know, like a reasonable sort of point here that is, you know, and it's quite the charge, right? That in other words, is Christendom the uh, apostate church? Because I think that's what Paul is sort of getting at. And, and if so, what do we do with that? Because it's the apostate church, I think. Right, that's giving some of us this, you know, giving some of this tradition to us. The only church for a long time. I mean, that this is the the problem. I think that what Hart is doing oftentimes is merely describing situations and the fact that there's no easy way through history. Like, I think that's great and one of the strengths of this book. But what he doesn't do at the end of the book is try to argue that you know New Testament Christianity is somehow a more full version than medieval Christianity. Because I don't think he thinks that. <laughs> Neither do I. I think he can describe a very nice picture in the New Testament. He can describe how that is even connected historically to the Middle Ages. Anybody, not, and he always says, non-interested observer, a historian would look, I mean, and say, this is absurd. These things contradict one another. Uh, and yet then he would say, yes, but the point is that what you're looking at in both places is something that's pointed towards uh, the end the apocalypse, the unveiling of Christ in all things, it's not clear to us or any person to get from point A, which is God in history, Jesus Christ, to the consummation of all things in any way that allows you to say what's accidental and what's necessary. What, what is a part of God's wisdom bringing this formally to be to its final end and what's not? And so I'm hesitant to try to do that. And uh, as Paul mentions, if you did do that, that would be self-defeating to Hart's project. I think mm -hmm. Paul's exactly right. So I'm fine with not taking another step forward beyond that and simply being able to say, uh, I can read a imperial, you know, a theologian of the empire in the 13th century and know that what I'm reading is fully participating in that apocalypse. Or I can read somebody in the second century who doesn't have any notion of Christianity becoming any sort of imperial power and is still, actually they weren't at that point, thinking that Jesus was going to return right up, right around the corner. You have some of these people thinking it'll be a thousand years or whatever. I'm fully willing to say, well, a lot of that's just accidental to the time and the space that they had and what tradition is, if it's anything, has to be understood in terms of potency and act and formal and final causality, uh, beginning and end, that it can't be simply history, because if it was, why would we believe any of this? Uh, I think that's the point, is a strict historicism points out that there are so many inconsistencies that uh, I'd be willing just to abandon the whole project. But there is this element of a belief in a final end that allows for some sort of coherence 
And what it holds together is the good and the bad, uh, essentially. So I'm, I would not be in the business. I think it's one thing to say certain doctrines, dogmas are obviously apostate in respect to that final end. That's pretty easy to do. But what the project always also has to be, and Hart just says, you know, Newman's the one who discovers this, and there's no way around it, is that tradition itself, in other words, the way these dogmas are formed in and by history, and as an unfolding of Jesus in history, uh, until that consummation of all things has to be accounted for as well. And that's a much more difficult project than simply picking out dogmas that obviously don't cohere to any sort of fine. Although maybe the dogmas aren't actually that obvious to everybody. I mean, uh, universalism is obviously highly contentious. I think of said peace. Peace is highly contentious, yeah. uh, oddly enough. The uh, most contentious, you know, yeah. Yeah. Um, but to relate that then to the actual data of history mm-hmm. is, is much more difficult. And I'm not willing to just pit the Christ, the Christ of the New Testament against Christendom. I don't think Hart is either. Uh, to be honest, I think I he's think saying, he's, yeah, not. I'm d- disagreed with. I think I'm agreeing with everything you're saying just now. That is that that there is this tension that it is an unfolding thing, and he's just saying we're in this tension. We're in the middle of this thing. In other words, what an Anabaptist would do, and in this sense, you know, I'm not uh, on board completely with the Anabaptists, but uh, nonetheless, I'm sympathetic. You know, Hart is talking about uh, the failure of Christendom and what he means. You know, the the falling apart of the of Christendom. And what he might mean by that, I assume that he just means that, oh, the Ottoman Empire failed, the, the modern nation state arose, the Christendom, those kingdoms, that those Christian nation states fell apart. What an Anabaptist would say, well, no, actually, Christendom is itself a falling apart. It is, you know, as John Howard Yoder would say, Christendom is the fall of Christianity that it is a, already a failure. And, and I think I'm between those two things. In other words, we, we are all dependent, even John Howard Yoder and the Anabaptists are ultimately dependent upon what Christendom has conveyed to us. And yet, I also would say that, but we really don't need to wait for the unfolding of the failure of Christendom to recognize that they're the inherent failures of Christendom. And so that is a kind of between place that I find myself by saying that the Christendom entailed failures from the beginning. Then we can point at things like the abandonment of nonviolence, the abandonment of serving in the military, and say specifically, here's the, the failures, and we can address those failures. I mean, yes, the fullness of Christ is a judgment upon every age. Yeah, yeah. I regularly say confession. It's sort of a a mystical thing that I think that we're describing, and I'm completely fine with that language, you know. But, you know, like our Lord Jesus Christ says, where two or more gathered, I am there. So that means that he's here right now, right? Like, so our Lord is here with us right now. He's incarnate somehow, mystically, in this conversation. One of my favorite theologians, of course, is Origen of Alexandria, right? And he says, you know, above all else, attend to the reading of Scripture. So I need to do a better job of this, right? But I would also say that the reason why we read Origen, Maximus, Thomas, 
or David Bentley Hart, right? Is because I think that there's something there that they're, Christ is in that, right? So Christ is, so these guys are expounding upon the scriptures, where Origen is saying that Christ is incarnate. He's saying that Christ is incarnate in the word. And so these theologians, or even in this conversation, potentially, right, that the Christ is somehow mysteriously incarnate. That's the reason why we're reading these guys. And so it could be even, uh, you know, someone like um, Heidegger. If you see Christ, you know, Christ is there. If, you know, for those that have ears, let him hear, or for those that have eyes to see, let him see, right? That even somewhere like in Heidegger, you could say, oh, wait, there's Christ, that he's there mystically. In other words, like in the same way that Christ said that you guys search the scriptures, you know, but they, they attest to me. You guys search the tradition, but they attest to me, right? That you guys read your book, you know? So in other words, like I, what I'm interested in is that like, yeah, that, that even in the empirical sort of Christianity, that Christ must some way mystically be there, right? Because the tradition really does unfold in that, historically, in that way, that, that people really do. Now, is it the full sort of revelation of Christ? Then no, that's only going to be achieved in the eschaton. But nonetheless, like the glory of Christ is spreading throughout the earth. You know, the whole structure of human thought and ethics and things like this are being revolutionized because of the spread of the gospel. So that, you know, love is a virtue, that, you know, and humility and things like this, things that never existed before are now coming into being because Christ is incarnate in that way. In other words, like it's a mysterious thing that we can't just look to a, you know, maybe like a propositional fact and say, there he is, right? But, but what we can say is, is that, well, in some wonderful way, you know, that whenever you go and you visit the poor and you give them a drink of water or you give them something to eat, you know, or you give them clothes, that Christ says that it was me that you were attending to. You know, so in other words, my point in all this, or maybe it's like yammering, but what I'm saying is, is that I think that there really is a, you're not going to be able to, what Hart is saying is you're not going to be able to see Christ in this sort of chain of uh, sort of perfect, you know, you remember the the graphs at the Bible colleges, yeah. here's the real church, you know, and it's got this complicated, it's like, no, that's, the, the, he, Christ is invisible. He's incomprehensible. Yes. He's uncircumscribable. You can't, you can't trace him in that type of way. And so, this is... I would say this is again where I see Lonergan's fingerprints is that uh, knowing what tradition is, is not like taking a look. You can't just see this in history. Um, but Hart even uses the phrase real relations. It is actually about a, for, a real relationship in between dogma, um, in between, I guess you could say Christian lives, like actual Christians and this antecedent final causality. And so it's that real relation that you're describing right now, Matt, I think. Yeah, we're here, like we're here on this call, I think to commune with Christ. Like, that's the reason why we're here. You know, so whenever we're talking to one another and we're, we're sharing in peace, like peace doesn't have to look like some, you know, you're standing in front of a tank or whatever. Right. The, the, you know, maybe that, maybe that is. And, uh, uh, but I think right now we're, 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 we're communing with Christ. Like that has to be what the gospel, the good news is, is that wherever two or more are gathered, it's like the peace of Christ, the love of Christ is there. So I think that we should be able to look in whether it's empirical history or even in our own history and say, yeah, you know, whenever I was talking to my wife like that, Christ wasn't there because I was talking, I was being disrespectful. I was being that, you know, so it's like, right. So that's the way that we should be able to locate him is in the beautiful and the good and the true uh, and, and not maybe in sort of a pronouncement or some sort of institution where you can say, look, there he is. He's right there. Forging you know? Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. 
If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.